The scripture reading for tonight comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the, the appearance of his countenance was altered and his robe became dazzling white. And behold, two men talked with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they awoke, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well that we are, with, that we are here. Let us make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he said this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silence and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The word of the Lord. seems like a guy who likes to tell a good story. You know the type, I'm sure. The type that's always talking. At a party, at a bar, around a campfire, in a meeting, on the bus, in a car, on a train. A lot of people, they just have breakfast and go to the store. But these people can weave eggs and backing out of the driveway into some intricate plot. An odyssey. They can make a trip to the mechanic seem like an adventure. And people gather around and they listen and they laugh. These are the enhancers, the embellishers, spinners. I always wonder, uh, do they come up with their embellishments while they're in the shower or they do it on the spot? But I'm pretty sure they're coming up with stuff. They're making stuff up. That's what good storytellers do. It's not like there aren't some facts involved. But I don't know if the deer carcass would really be stuffed into the front driver's seat, maybe in the back seat. Or I don't know if they'd really run into Norm Coleman on the same day that they encountered the deer carcass. <laughs> to be honest, I don't really trust Luke. I mean, I guess I'm glad he's not the only one that's giving us the story of Jesus. I'm glad we have Mark, who's sort of dark and spare and, I don't know, quiet. He probably sat all alone at parties. I'm glad we have John, who's thick and deep and complicated. Luke's like the popularizer. He'd probably write pop songs. Something that'll sell, something that'll reach a broader audience. He writes in the mode that will appeal to popular culture. Some scholars refer to his books as early Christian romance. Christian romance. That's not the section I'm drawn to at the bookstore. They call it that because he's writing 
so much like the other romantic literature of his day, all embellished with shipwrecks and angels and exotic animals and pirates. Actually, there's no pirates. <laughs> but it's like he thought, what are people into? Reality TV? Rap? Luke seems like the kind of Christian that might write Christian rap to reach the hood. But the thing is, the hood he's writing for is the Roman Empire. He wants to tell the story in a way that will appeal to the good citizens of the Roman Empire. I'm sure he went to the barber and he was like, yeah, cut my hair and make it look Roman. <laughs> Hip was obviously not a word that was used much then, but he was a guy that was trying hard. He probably wore a Roman earring or a choker. He wanted to be relevant, not part of some weird old musty subculture. The Romans had oppressed the Jews, the Jewish people, the people in whose faith his faith had its roots. They'd oppressed him for a very, very long time. They had utterly destroyed Jerusalem, killed thousands of Jewish people, took thousands more into slavery, put Christians into the Colosseum to be torn apart by wild animals for their entertainment. Luke not only seems to let them off the hook, he writes a romance, tells a Roman-like story. Romance, romance. You get it? It's like he's chomping at the bit to tell an epic myth. And if he took the leash off, he'd run with it. He'd design costumes. He would hire a tenor. He'd put an olive wreath on Mary's head and a toga on Joseph. He puts words in the mouth of his characters that you'd hear in the halls of Caesar's palace. Every chance he gets, he writes a song. Mary's song, Zechariah's song, Simeon's song. Not that there's anything wrong with writing songs, but most of his songs aren't that good, aside from Mary's. We're talking like he wants to put on a full-scale romantic production. What he could have done with the mountain of transfiguration, the material was all there. Everybody was doing gods on a mountaintop. You just have to put the words together, God, mountaintop, instant cultural resonance, huge audience for that kind of a thing. Across cultures, worldwide, actually. You might have to stretch it a little to make a trip to the grocery store seem dramatic, but a transfiguration on a mountaintop, everyone would have resonated with that. Mountain stories were to Luke's day like sitcoms and talk shows were to the 70s, like video games are to 13-year-olds, instant audience. Gods and mountains were like irresistible material, ears perked up, familiar, yeah, but endlessly entertaining. The scene that Luke writes about in our scripture has the elements that the culture would have admired. Visibility, name recognition, Mountains and gods, strength and power, bigness. He's writing for a Roman audience. We're talking about a people who loved, who ate up, who were fascinated by the Olympians. Mount Olympus, 
what's not to be fascinated by there? The 12 strongest, most powerful, most beautiful, most muscular, most gorgeous gods and goddesses. Mm. <laughs> Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, Aphrodite, all coming together, all gorgeous on a beautiful mountain up in the sky. This mythic mountain where they each had their separate dwelling places to return to after a night of partying at Jupiter's place, and Artemis, the lady of wild things, would pass around the food, nectar and ambrosia. Just saying that, nectar and ambrosia. That's what the gods ate up on the mountain, and it was the food that reinforced their immortality. While Apollo played the lute and the muses sang and Aphrodite danced, Homer writes about the Olympians in the Odyssey. A lot of people surmise that Luke probably styled himself a little after the ancient Homer. That he wanted really, he wanted really to write the Christian Odyssey. Homer writes, the mountain, the seat of the eternal gods, which never storm disturb, rains drench never, or snow never invades, but calm. The expanse and cloudless shines with purest day. There the inhabitants divine rejoice forever. Luke gets similar raw material. The meeting of figures, mythic figures, on the mountaintop. And he writes, They went up to the mountain, and a cloud came and overshadowed them, when they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Homer's shining, cloudless, rejoicing clarity. Luke writes, a cloud and a cloud and afraid and dense. It's a surprising turn for Mr. Romance. Jesus does have a meeting with Elijah and Moses, but they don't dine and dance and return to their dwelling places like the Olympians. Luke does slip in that Peter wants to build them dwelling places. Of course, booths. Luke probably wanted to write about them in detail. But apparently this is an entirely different story. I practically feel bad for Luke, given his Homeric inclinations. He could have made this thing fly. He could have made this whole story soar, like operatic. But this story doesn't soar, actually. It's no eagle. It's more like a little wet bird with clipped wings. There's no ambrosia and music and muses, no Aphrodite dancing. Jesus doesn't even go up to eat the nectar, to be fed by the muses. This meaning is so dull that the disciples can barely stay awake for it. These mythic figures don't eat the food that will reinforce their immortality. They actually have a conversation about Jesus' death. They have a conversation, Luke says, about Jesus' departure, what he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. His exodus is the word Luke uses. In light of Luke's tendencies, his romantic, Homeric inclinations, it's practically astonishing Startling, really, the story that he ends up proclaiming. Right before they go up the mountain, Jesus talks about his death. He goes up the mountain, and he discusses his death with Elijah and Moses. He comes back down the mountain, 
And he talks about it again. He says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. Luke writes that the disciples didn't understand this saying. I wonder if Luke didn't really understand the saying either. I wonder if Luke really identifies with the disciples here. He doesn't even really fully understand the story he's telling. He's not telling it like he would want to. Maybe he was always struggling with that part. The same part that the disciples struggled with. The part that's at the absolute center, but somehow in our vision always slips a little bit to the side. The God that we have, the God we worship, the God we claim to follow as Christians, dies. Dies without a fight. Suffers on a cross. Luke actually downplays the suffering. Gives up glory and power and strength. No matter how anybody ever tries to spin that, Jesus will get unspun. Seems to mean to lead his people in that direction. Giving up power and glory and strength. Let's the powerful kill him. And says, God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus doesn't go down fighting like any self-respecting God would do. Doesn't fight, even for what's right. This story is about a no-fight God. I can understand the tendency to want to dress that up a little bit. I can understand why that, not, that might not be immediately appealing to the citizens of empire, to the citizens of the most powerful nation on earth. I can understand why that doesn't ever hardly quite sink in, sink deeply into the ears. A God without a fight? That's hard to make into a good story. A good story for Roman ears, empire ears. The thing is that stories of powerful gods are so appealing. Moses and Elijah, they have great stories. Very popular among their audiences. And their stories have fights in them. Some pretty bloody and heroic ones, actually. Moses and Elijah both had their mountains. And they had their exoduses, too. Moses, he defines exodus. We call his book Exodus. Moses' Exodus is the stuff of Greek, Greek myth, practically. There are winners and there are losers. It's super dramatic, Charlton Heston-like movie material. The plagues and the waters flooding the chariots, drowning the people in the Red Sea. I mean, just having chariots. Epic battles, parting water, tons of drama. And tons of people die, actually. Even the little babies of the Egyptian children die, of the Egyptians die. And Elijah has a great exodus, too. 
The chariot comes down out of the sky, the fiery chariot, and he just steps on it, and it lifts him up to heaven. He doesn't die, actually. What an exodus. Who wouldn't want that? Moses on Mount Sinai, famous story. And it says the appearance of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountains. Moses comes down and he finds that the people are dancing around the golden calf. And the text says that his anger burned hot. And he breaks the tablets and he says to the people, who is on the Lord's side? And he says, the people that come up over and line up on the Lord's side, he says, okay, take your swords. And he says, slay every man his brother. Slay every man his companion and every man his neighbor. And the text says that 3,000 people were slain that day by the priests of Aaron. Elijah's on Mount Carmel, and he had a contest with the prophets of Baal. And the priests of Baal were unable to work their magic, but the fire of Yahweh came down and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and looked up the water in the trench that Elijah had dug. Elijah was on the Lord's side, and then Elijah killed the 450 prophets of Baal. And the enemy's blood flowed all around the base of the mountain. It wasn't just nectar and ambrosia that was the stuff of gods, but destruction and violence and vengeance and wrath. Lots of wrath. Lots of violence. Jesus isn't that kind of a god. And he's not after the nectar and ambrosia for himself and his cohorts for the good and the righteous. I would have liked to have heard the conversation that Joseph had with, I mean, what Jesus had with Joseph, Moses and Elijah. Jesus' story is a subversive story. I think it subverts even our own imaginations. It gives us the elements for the reformation of our imaginations. It's a story that may little by little by little by little unhook us from even our very small and very comfortable little ways of participating in violence. It's a story that shears off the violence from the perception of God entirely shears off the wrath and anger and divine judgment, may slowly shear off our own needs to judge. James Allison said that the authentic converts to this story, the story of Jesus, always write a story about how they discovered mercy. I think maybe that's why Luke is so generous to the Romans. He's discovered a very wild and a very disconcerting and a very disorienting hope. And maybe that's why he can write a story even for them, the empire. A story which actually dares to suggest that the Roman Empire isn't the enemy. A story that even the Roman Empire is invited to participate in. Even us. Luke tells a story that we actually are asked to participate in. Most of us born and bred in the heart of empire. 
We get to hear that. We get to participate. Even we might be able to do this in remembrance of Jesus. Jesus.